Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. In this podcast, we will try to tell the remarkable story of the Jewish people. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Please don't hesitate to reach out with any questions, with any comments, with any feedback, and please check out my website, rabbiwolby.com, for more of my podcast channels. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter, visit rabbiwolby.com forward slash newsletter. The first five episodes will attempt to give a broad skeletal outline of Jewish history. So think of it as 5,000 years, five millennia of Jewish history in five episodes. The future episodes will delve more deeply into specific trends and events and themes and personalities of Jewish history But in the first five episodes, we're going to cover the broad strokes of Jewish history. In part one, we will cover, please God, the story of the Jewish people as told in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the five books of Moses. This is part one of the five millennia of Jewish history, faith, fathers, and foundations. Now, obviously... This is going to be a truncated, abbreviated version of Jewish history. We're going to try to cover the highlights, the main points, the main themes. But obviously, we're not telling the full story because we want to give the big picture before we get into the details. Okay, let us begin. Of course, the Torah begins with Genesis. And chapter 1 of Genesis describes the seven days of Creation. If you read the first verse of Genesis, you read about the creation of heaven and earth. And if the only verse that you read is the first verse of Genesis, you would imagine that the book would deal with a lot of cosmology and ecology. After all, talking about heaven and the galaxies and the spheres and the cosmos. And it's talking about earth. You'd imagine it deals with a lot of those themes. But after the first verse, you don't hear any more mentioning of heaven or earth. After quickly running through creation, the narrative quickly begins to focus and narrow and zone in on humanity. And eventually on the forbearers of the Jewish people. And eventually on the nation itself. Adam, of course, is the first human that's mentioned in the Torah. What happened before Adam is apparently irrelevant for our purposes. What happens to the animals, that too is not the subject of interest. Was Adam the first humanoid? Was he the first human, the first homo sapien? That question is hotly contested and disputed and debated, But clearly, there is something special and important about Adam. He was a human who was also infused with a godly soul. Tradition tells us that Adam was created unlike anyone else. He was someone who had a soul, a heavenly soul infused within him that mobilized and galvanized him to seek good. He was good bereft of any evil. The only force that compelled him to behave was good. Externally, he had the serpent trying to get him to do bad, but that was not inherent to who he was. And God takes Adam 
and Eve and places them in the garden and makes a test for them not to eat from the tree of knowledge, the tree of good and evil. And Adam and Eve capitulate. They heed the instruction of the serpent. They consume from the forbidden fruit. And thenceforth, Adam's physiology changes. Once he eats from the tree of good and evil, now both good and evil are internal motivating forces within him. No longer is the force of evil external alone. Now we, he has a heavenly soul, a godly soul, compelling him for good, and he has a force of evil, an evil inclination within him as well. And humanity doesn't really have a very long grace period. Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, and the Almighty places a flaming, swirling sword at the entrance of the garden to prevent Adam and Eve from returning. And Adam and Eve's children don't either seem to be models of exemplary behavior. Cain kills Abel. And with this fratricide, humanity is off to a rough start. And things go south from there. People devolve in ways of immorality. There is sexual immorality, there's debauchery, there's perversion, there's theft. And there really isn't much of a hope, much of a glimmer of goodness in the world until the arrival of a righteous tzaddik, a righteous person named Noah. And God affords the world another 120 years. And if people don't shape up, he's going to destroy the world. And God reveals his plans to Noah. And he tells him, I'm going to destroy the world with a deluge, with a flood. Go build a monstrous boat to accommodate all the species to from every animal and seven from every kosher animal and all the grains and all the vegetables and all the shrubbery, we need to build a gargantuan ship. Now, Noah was a very good candidate to be the father of the nation that would change the trajectory of humanity. He was righteous. He was a prophet. But something was missing. He had a golden opportunity to change the world, but he comes up empty-handed. In 120 years, he's building the boat with great efficiency, but he influences exactly zero people to change their ways. And when he enters the ark, it's just him and his immediate family. And the flood destroys all. Tradition tells us that the animals that had interbred with members of different species were all destroyed. We know today that 99% plus, maybe 99.9% of all species that have ever lived are extinct. The flood, according to our tradition, was a mass extinction event. And this also may explain why you would find deep sea fossils very far inland, nowhere near the sea, if there was a time where the entire land was swamped over by water, that obviously was a, uh, a tremendously a jarring event for the world's ecosystem. 
So Noah's legacy is kind of mixed. On one hand, he was personally righteous. But he doesn't change the world around him. Nothing fundamental has been fixed. And the search for someone, for some family, for some tribe, for some people, for some nation that's going to change the world, that search continues. Soon after the flood, we have the Tower of Babel episode and the subsequent dispersion. And that really demonstrates that the world is in need of a major shakeup. And indeed, things were bleak until the arrival of a bright beacon of light who emerged and changed the world. In the year 1948, since Adam, of course, the Jewish calendar starts with Adam. What happened before Adam is immaterial, is irrelevant to us. A young boy named Abraham, soon to be Abraham, was born in Mesopotamia in a place called Ur-Kazdim, today in southern Iraq. And he's born into a sea of paganism. In fact, even today, the remains of a gargantuan ziggurat, the great ziggurat of Ur, which is a pyramidal terraced shrine to idolatry, those remains are still extant today in southern Iraq, in the city of Ur, in Abraham's birthplace. And Abraham displays certain unique qualities that make him very different from all the people around him. He is a ponderer. He's someone who thinks deeply, who cogitates about matters of philosophy and theology. And he's also someone who is willing to dissent, who is willing to go against the flow, who is willing to reject the ways of the the idolaters. He is an iconoclast who shatters the idols and pursues truth, even though it's against the conventional wisdom of the people around him, and even at great personal peril. And he uses his titanic intellect and deductive reasoning to discover the truth that there is a single God who is the sole force who creates, sustains, and supervises all. The idea of distributed power, where there is the God of the day and the God of the night and the God of the sun and the God of the moon. That idea Abraham rejects. There's only one power and that power is the one that gives anything else its relative power. And Abraham not only does he make this discovery, he also commits himself to a life of spreading this idea. He accepts God's dominion and he pledges his life together with his wife, Sarah, to spread monotheism in the world. And he begins to disseminate his message. He organizes a movement. He goes from town to town, teaching, preaching, debating with crystal clear logic and incisive wisdom. And eventually he amasses tens of thousands of followers. In the parlance of Jewish philosophy, Abraham was trying to achieve tikkun olam, to fix the world of its fatal flaw of lack of recognition of God. He faced death threats. He was ostracized. There were assassination attempts against him, but Abraham forged ahead nonetheless, undaunted. 
At the age of 75, God prophesied to Abraham, leave your land, leave your homeland, abandon your place of birth, and go to Canaan, the land that we today call the land of Israel. And he obeys unquestioningly. And he travels together with legions of his followers. And he arrives at Canaan and visits all different places in the land. And he continues his mission to change the world. And again and again, God appears to him and makes him promises. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will make you into a father of a great nation. And four separate times he's promised that his descendants will inherit this great land of Canaan. You will be the father of the chosen people. Your children will complete the mission that you began and the mission that you dedicated your life to accomplish. And since then, Abraham's descendants have been calling themselves the chosen people. We are chosen by God for a purpose, to be the vanguard of the mission to bring God into the world and to complete the Abrahamic destiny to finish what our forefather Abraham started many thousands of years ago. We weren't chosen randomly. We were chosen because Abraham made the choice. Abraham chose God, and reciprocally, God chose Abraham. We are the ones who are tasked with the responsibility of bringing the world to Messiah, to universal acceptance of the Abrahamic principles and finishing and completing the purpose of creation. But all this, Abraham is told, comes at a cost. God also promises him that his children will be foreigners in a foreign land and will be enslaved for 400 years to become the nation that embodies the Abrahamic principles, the alloys, the spiritual alloys that exist within us must be purged, and that is not necessarily pleasant. The Talmud tells us that this world is a 6,000-year world. The first 2,000 years are years of confusion and desolation. The middle 2,000 years are 2,000 years of Torah, of revelation. And the final 2,000 years are 2,000 years of Messiah. This is a 6,000-year enterprise. The way the world is currently constructed, it's 6,000 years since Adam. And it's a three-act play. Each part contains 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, the world is desolate. There's no one who stands up and says, I will bring God into this world. And after 2,000 years, Abraham appears. And this bright beacon of light permeates the world of darkness. The desolation has been dispelled, and one epoch closes, and another is born. The 2,000 years of desolation are no more, and we have now transitioned into an era, into 2,000 years of Torah. Thenceforth, the Almighty will always have an emissary in this world. Now, Abram himself personally is continually tested and challenged by God, and he has to endure all manner of hardship, infertility, famines, twice his wife Sarah is kidnapped, his faith in God never wavers. When Sarah is barren, he marries an Egyptian princess named Hagar as a secondary wife, and he bears Ishmael. 
who causes him further hardship. As a symbol of his personal perfection, the Almighty gives him the commandment, the mitzvah of brismila, of circumcision, to perfect his body as well as his soul. And miraculously, at the age of 100, with Sarah being advanced in years, aged 90, Isaac is born. Abraham and Sarah finally have an heir. And Abraham's tests continue. Ishmael must be banished because his behavior is quite harmful and egregious. There's the binding of Isaac episode when Abraham is told to sacrifice his son. Sarah dies unexpectedly and Abraham must negotiate a burial plot for her in Hebron, which became known as the Cave of the Patriarchs. And the movement that Abraham begins has some legs to it. Now we have a successor. We have Isaac. Things look promising. We could perhaps be a bit optimistic. But the movement sputters. It founders. It flounders a little bit. Achieving the world's crucial Abrahamic mission is not exactly smooth sailing. It's not exactly seamless. What happens to the tens of thousands of Abraham students? They disappear from history. Abraham's progeny is not entirely conducive to continuing his legacy. His son Ishmael was not a deadly perfect candidate to be the one to faithfully uphold the Abrahamic mission. Isaac was the spiritual heir of Abraham. And he too has a son who went a bit off. That's that's Esau, that's Esau. Incidentally, when we look back at the great vast expanse of world history, both Ishmael with the Muslims and Esau, Esau with the Christians, they both become fathers of great religions that perhaps unwittingly partner with the Jewish people to disseminate maybe a slightly corrupted version of the Abrahamic principle, but they do it on a mass scale to billions of people. And we believe that they play a certain role in contributing to fulfill the Abrahamic mission. Namely, they're the ones who achieve the mass adoption of the general idea. It's not quite perfect. It's close enough. And the role of Messiah is to just tweak what the other, so to speak, sister religions have done and to make it perfect on a large scale. For the chosen people, Abraham wasn't the perfect formula. He still had some Ishmael in him. Isaac, too, had some Esau in him. Third time's the charm. All of Jacob's children will be righteous and comprise the tribes of the nation. Now, Isaac is the most mysterious of the three patriarchs. There are really no iconic stories about him in the Torah. He's very static. He's very stationary. Abraham and Jacob are always traveling. They're doing. They're engaging. They're contending. They're interacting. And Isaac is almost inert. And they represent different roles in history. There's a time for conquest. And there's a time for consolidation. There's a time for mobilization. And then there's a time for integration. Isaac is about internalizing the lessons of Abraham before they can be disseminated 
by Jacob. Abram was born outside of Israel and comes to Israel. Jacob was born in Israel and spreads the message in the diaspora outside of Israel. Isaac is born in Israel and is told you may never leave because your role is to cement, so to speak, what Abraham accomplished before Jacob could spread the message onward. The middle period, the middle 2,000 years of Torah is when the Jewish people are insular. We're like Isaac. Our message really doesn't go forth. It's not quite ready for the world stage. Abraham, he was uncircumcised and he circumcised himself. Isaac, we're told... He was circumcised at eight days. Jacob was born circumcised, the sages tell us. And what do we find out about his story? His children, they circumcise others. They spread the message onward. They circumcise both the people of Shechem, to quite dramatic effect, shall we say. And Joseph brings circumcision to the land of Egypt. Abraham is the one who makes the discovery. Isaac is the one who ensures that that discovery is not lost or tampered with. And once we have that firm foundation, Jacob, symbolizing the third epic of Messiah, is able to spread that message successfully onward and throughout the world. Now, much of Isaac's story in the Torah mirrors Abraham. His wife is barren as well. His wife is kidnapped as well. He digs the same wells as Abraham dug. He has one son who will be his legacy and heir and one son who will drift away and do his own thing. And that's this idea that whatever Abraham accomplished, Isaac is reinforcing that is his role in this triumvirate. And he has two sons and the two sons are twins, but they could not be more different. And their struggle between Jacob and Esau begins in utero. Even before birth, the two are jockeying and sparring. Each one represents a world. And these two people and these two worlds are opposite. When Jerusalem flourishes, Rome suffers. When Rome is ascendant, Jerusalem must fall. These are opposites. Only one can triumph at a given time. And this is emblematic of Jewish history. Just as Jacob and Esau were struggling in utero, Jacob, soon to be named Israel, the third father of our people, he is symbolic of all the struggles that our nation will have to endure over our history. And just like he had to struggle with Esau in utero, we are going to be in close confines with the non-Jewish descendants of Esau and we will need to contend with that force. And the birth is quite dramatic. Jacob reaches and grabs Esau's ankle. Jacob's ultimate victory will not be assured until the last moment when he snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. And on a deeper level, perhaps, Jacob, he is tasked with extracting the good that Esau possesses and taking it for himself. He takes Esau's birthright. He takes his blessing. He takes his intended wife, Leah. And tradition tells us that these stories are not isolated incidents. These are the framework, the guardrails, 
the scaffolding, so to speak, of what happens to us throughout our history. Whatever happened to the forefathers, especially to Jacob, to Israel, will happen to us as well. And just like Jacob, at any point of his story, we could be skeptical, dubious, we could be very worried about the likelihood of the success of the mission. Us too as well. You look at any point in history, we're always dealing with crises. And when we overcome one crisis, another one surfaces. And we're never quite sure until the very end, when we grab that ankle and catapult, so to speak, towards victory, only at the very end are we guaranteed success. Only when things are all said and done does it become clear that it was all a resounding success. Jacob lives an uncomfortable and conflicted life. He wants to be Jacob the innocent, Jacob the unassuming, Jacob the pure, sitting in the tents of Torah. But the Almighty manipulates the situation. The Almighty forces him to become Israel. He has to engage and outwit Esav. He has to contend with the wily and deceitful Laban, who swaps wives, who renades upon agreements, who changes the terms of the deal a hundred times. He has to escape to another land. He has to assume the role of warrior upon his return. He has to manage a burgeoning family of multiple wives of 12 strong-minded and challenging sons. And even after he navigates the minefields of Laban and Esav, Jacob is never confident that everything will work out okay. There is intra-family hostility towards four of his sons born from the secondary wives, and especially towards his favorite son, towards Joseph. Reuben seems to commit a grievous blunder unworthy of this family tribe. Shimon and Levi appear to be following Asaph's ideology when they slaughter an entire city. Judah is demoted from his stature, and he has a tumultuous, perhaps we could even say scandalous, family life. Joseph disappears. We know that he was sold as a slave to an Egyptian master. Everyone knows what happened. The brothers know what happened. But Jacob is left in the dark. He doesn't know where Joseph went. And the family and the dream, shall we say, of fulfilling the Abrahamic destiny seems to be falling out of his grasp. And more troubles befall him. There's famine. Shimon is taken prisoner by a foreign leader. Benjamin is taken away as well. As an outsider, we would be quite skeptical and doubtful. Can this family be pulled together again? But ultimately... At the end of his life, everything works out to perfection. All of his children are united. They're in Egypt, but they're together. And he is assured that his bed is complete. All his children are righteous. And when Jacob dies, we seem to really be in a zone. Jacob shows us that Jewish history will be a bit touch and go for a while. It will seem like things are lost. Things appear helpless. Perhaps we look like we're doomed. Maybe we will never achieve our destiny. But at the very last second, at the very last moment, we will grab the ankles of our adversaries and we will triumph. The book of Exodus marks a transition. The story started off with the man. It went to a movement, but it contracted back into a family. 
and the family blossomed into a tribe. In the book of Exodus, the people will become a nation. But they're a nation living under a repressive regime in Egypt. There is devolvement. They are enslaved both physically and spiritually. They forget their role and purpose and destiny. They lose hope in salvation. They lose the ability to imagine themselves as anything but slaves of Pharaoh. Once again, it looks like the family and the nation and the people will not fulfill their destiny. And an unusual leader rises to save the people. Moshe, Moses, is emblematic of great Jewish leaders and of salvation in general. He doesn't have the look. He doesn't cut the figure of a prototypical leader. He's reluctant to lead. He's exceedingly humble. He's not a dynamic orator. In fact, he has a speech impediment. And also, he can be quite credibly charged as being a traitor to his people. After all, he's raised in luxury in the palace as a stepson of the great villain and enemy, Pharaoh. And this is a trend found by transformative Jewish leaders. People who dramatically impact the direction of the nation are not necessarily the people that you would point to and assume that they are primed for greatness. Salvation only happens when we cannot telegraph the path of salvation. No one would have imagined that the Jewish people in the dregs of Egyptian enslavement would be saved from a savior, from Moshe, from Moses, who comes from the epicenter of the enemy, from the heart of the villain, from Pharaoh's own house. And in Jewish history, we see that salvation comes from quite unusual places. No one would have imagined that the scandalous relationship of Judah and Tamar and of Boaz and Ruth and David and Bathsheba would bring about the Messianic line and the Messianic dynasty. Perhaps we can extend this pattern to modern Jewish history. No one would have imagined that someone as distant from traditional Judaism as Theodore Herzl, who once advocated mass conversion to Christianity as the solution to anti-Semitism in Europe, no one would have imagined that such a person would be instrumental to bringing the Jewish people back to Israel. Indeed, salvation comes from unusual people, from unusual places, from unusual circumstances. And Moshe travels on a donkey to save the people. And he had been away from Egypt ever since he killed a ruthless Egyptian guard to defend one of his brethren, and he had to escape Pharaoh's justice. And the verse tells us that he travels on a donkey. And Rashi, quoted from our sages in the Talmud and in other areas of Jewish literature, Rashi tells us that the donkey that Moshe used to get back to Egypt is the same donkey that Abraham used to get to the Banya of Isaac. And it's also the same animal that Messiah is going to ride upon to herald the final messianic call. And this is really strange because we don't imagine that this particular mode of transportation is so important. So our sages are explaining to us what this means. And they tell us that the three paramount figures in Jewish history, we talked about the three epochs of history. There is the confusion, 
And Abraham changes that. And there's the Torah and Moshe. And Moses, of course, is the one who brings us the Torah. And Messiah, that last 2,000-year period, that's going to be effectuated or at least completed by the King Messiah soon to arrive. These three are the most important people in history, and they all exhibit a certain personal greatness that is hinted in this particular little vignette, little anecdote that they all rode upon a donkey. And our sages explain that the donkey symbolizes physicality. The three people that lead us to the promised land, so to speak, all themselves must be personal exemplars of righteous and upstanding character. In Jewish history, the leaders that guide others must themselves be absolutely superlatively exemplary in their own character. Their physicality, their chamor, which is the Hebrew word for donkey, which means physicality, they must ride over it. They must dominate it in order for them to actually influence others. And again, there's a consistent theme threading since Adam. Adam corrupted, and now we have this 6,000-year attempt broken down into three blocks of 2,000 years to try to fix what he broke. And the leaders who most exemplify the fixing are the ones that bring others along the way. And the entire story of the Exodus from Egypt is the story of the founding of our people and the foundations of our religion and faith. There's all kinds of miracles that happen along the way in the Exodus. And these miracles deepen the nation's connection and commitment to God. We have 10 plagues that demonstrate God's total dominion over every aspect of the world and display his individual providence and his individual oversight. You have a glass of water and the Jew who drinks it drinks water and the Egyptian who drinks the very same glass drinks blood. The Jewish people are learning a very valuable lesson. The Almighty oversees all. And then we have the splitting of the sea, and that shows the Almighty's love for us and how he responds to our prayer. And with this final miracle, the Jews have shaken themselves free of their captors, and they are smooth sailing. But right away, another conflict happens. A new enemy lurks right after the Exodus. There was only one nation that dare to attack the Jewish people, and that is the arch enemy of our people, the nation of Amalek. And they acted like suicidal kamikazes. Their hatred of our people ran so deep that even though they knew that attacking the Jewish people would result in sure death and destruction, they attacked nonetheless. And this too marks a pattern of our history. We will always face headwinds. The second we slip free of the Egyptians, there has to be necessarily another enemy that we must encounter. There's always a force in opposition that tries to obstruct our path. And the force that comes and attacks us when we are at our peak and we're close to our goal is our arch enemy, our formidable foe, the nation of Amalek. Amalek is the grandson of Esau. 
And that is the force that's the most concentrated force of Esav and thus the one that arises when we are about to achieve our destiny. Fifty days after the Exodus, the Jewish nation had the Mount Sinai experience. This is the most significant event of all time. And it's the culmination of the miracles of the Exodus. And it's the foundational event of our nation and our religion. And it's unparalleled in history. The Jewish nation, a people comprised of millions of men, women, and children. And according to the Talmud, the 2,000-year-old authoritative work of Jewish law and philosophy, it wasn't just the people who were alive then. It was all future Jewish souls. They were present as well. They experienced prophecy alongside Moses. And they witnessed God and heard him convey the Ten Commandments from amidst the fiery mountain. This national revelation dispelled any doubts that the people may have had about the veracity of their faith. And it also proved that Moshe, that Moses was a legitimate prophet and that he communicates to us the unadulterated word of God. Moshe is the father of all the prophets because he validates other prophets. His prophecy is incontrovertible and thus he legitimizes all the other prophets. The nation spent a long time at Mount Sinai and what they did there essentially for a a year, 10 days shy of a year, they studied the Torah that Moshe conveyed to them and they studied it day and night. Moshe is conveyed laws from God and he in turn conveys it to the nation. And they're living on a very supernatural level. They're eating magical manna that parachuted down to them from heaven daily and twice on Friday. They're drinking water from a rock. Their clothing grows with them. They are enveloped by topography-flattening clouds by day and a pillar of fire at night. And of course, they have in their midst Moses, who is in constant communication with God. The nation is flourishing, but they have some pitfalls. Of course, there's the golden calf episode right after the revelation at Sinai. And there's all kinds of complaints. The people are stiff-necked people. They love to complain. They don't like the manna. They want meat. They need their cucumbers. And there are rebels who want to go back to Egypt. And there's the disaster of the spies. Moshe sends 12 righteous men to reconnoiter the land, and they come back with terrifying accounts. They want to go back to Egypt. There's, of course, the Korach Rebellion, where Moshe's legitimacy as the leader of the people is questioned by his quarrelsome cousin. And the nation dips. After Sinai, the presence of God was palpable everywhere. Everywhere you wanted it, you could get it. God promised, wherever you utter my name, I will come and bless you. But this idyllic state lasted for 40 days. With the sin of the golden calf, God withdrew. And he commanded Moshe, construct a tabernacle, a portable forerunner of the permanent temple in which God would reside. No longer would God be accessible without any obstructions everywhere. Thenceforth, his presence would be limited to the tabernacle. And the instructions for assembling the materials and building the tabernacle and all all its vessels and vestments and the actual implementation of the building of the tabernacle and its vestments and vessels, that is a subject that dominates the end of the book of 
Exodus and what actually happened in the tabernacle and subsequently in the temple, the various sacrifices and rituals that comprises a large part of the book of Leviticus. Over the course of the 40 years from the Exodus until the end of Moses' life and the end of the Torah, the nation moves and travels often and they travel at undefined times. They have no forewarning. They can never be sure that they're going to remain in a certain location, in a certain encampment for very long. And this too is part of the education of the Jewish people. They have to know that they are subject to God entirely and they have no say in their destiny and thus they become the nation indeed that is worthy of fulfilling the Abrahamic destiny. Over the course of 40 years, the nation must uproot, travel, and settle again in 42 different places. And the overwhelming majority of the narrative of the Torah takes place over the course of the first two years of the 40 years and the last couple of months of those same 40 years. We know very little about what happened during the middle 38 years. And besides for the war with Amalek, right after the Exodus, the nation successfully wages war and conquers the great and mighty nations of the east side of the Jordan. The Bashanites, the Amorites, the Midianites, they all fall to the Jews. And the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, they choose to make the east bank of the Jordan their permanent home. The final encampment, 42 out of 42, occurred in the plains of Moab, on the east bank of the Jordan River, facing the ancient city of Jericho. The Jewish people are a stone's throw away from their desired destination, from the same land that God told Abraham many years before, leave your homeland and travel to land of Canaan. But Moshe is told, you may not cross this Jordan, you may not enter the land with your flock. It's been 40 years, a generation has passed, Moshe must remain out of the land to be buried with his fallen comrades. Moshe led them this far, but someone else must lead them across the Jordan and into the land of Canaan. Moshe is the quintessential Jewish leader. Under his leadership, the nation blossoms and matures into a people, into a nation, into the chosen people into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. During this era, the Jewish people are going to be insular. They're going to grow and develop internally, but they're going to have a negligible impact on teaching the world at large about God. The era of Messiah, of disseminating these ideas outwardly, that hasn't yet begun. For the middle 2,000 years, the struggle will be about the nation alone, maintaining its spiritual stature and role, and not capitulating to the forces surrounding them. And even when there were mishaps, so long as Moshe was alive, there's all kinds of miracles that are present, fixing these mistakes happened quickly and relatively easily. The great challenge is going to be what happens after Moshe passes, and the nation crosses over the Jordan and enters the land under the leadership of someone who is not as great as Moshe, because no one is. What's going to be when all those miracles subside? The Jewish nation is no longer living in a supernatural, kind of artificial way. They have to live amidst the rules of nature. What's going to be 
when they don't have all these steady miracles that they had grown accustomed to. The bulk of the book of Deuteronomy is dedicated to Moshe's guidance and exhortations to the nation to remain true to their mission and not to capitulate to the temptations and the seductions of idolatry that they will surely face once they cross over the Jordan. And who indeed will lead the nation after his passing? The role was going to go to Aaron's two sons, to Nadav and Avihu, but they perished when they brought an improper sacrifice. That story is told in the book of Leviticus. Moshe wanted his own sons to inherit his post, but God said to him, your disciple, your protege, Joshua, he will lead the people. He is the right man for the job. And indeed, Moses dies on the doorstep of Israel. He is told to ascend the mountain, gaze over the entire length and breadth of the land of Israel, but he may not cross the Jordan. There is no man who could bury Moshe. He is buried by God himself. And thus, the greatest human and the greatest leader of all time is no longer available to lead the people. How will the Jews fare in his absence? That is going to be the subject of the next episode of the Jewish History Podcast. But I think as we embark on the quest to study Jewish history, we have to ponder several questions. Why is it important to study history in general? And in particular, why is it important for us as Jews to study Jewish history? What is the value of learning about the past? Many people find history to be quite boring. There's, you know, this bland jumble of dates and events and people and kings and ancient societies and civilizations, things that don't seem to be very interesting or relevant to our lives today. And if you look at Jewish history in particular, you find that it's almost an endless litany of bad things that befell our people. It's sad and maybe even at some times quite morbid. Why study it? Why relive the agony, the despair of yore? Why revisit the pain and suffering of our antecedents? Now, there are many answers to this question. I think in general, history, there's a common axiom. History tends to repeat itself. Maybe not precisely, but certainly it rhymes, shall we say. And we say, we're told, we're trained, that history is the testing ground of ideas. If you learn about the past and the decisions and conflicts that existed in the past, that will inform you about the present. Because you know what? Human nature seems to be constant despite the world rapidly changing and evolving around us. Winston Churchill used to say, the longer you could see back into the past, the farther you can see into the future. So that's, I think, a good reason to study history in general. But Jewish history in particular, there is an additional wrinkle of why Jewish history is so important. The Torah itself, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 7, tells us, Zichor Salam, remember the days of the world. Binu Storvadar, ponder the years of every generation. Ask your father and he will tell you. Zikhenecha, your elders, and they will speak to you. We have almost a religious obligation to study our predecessors and antecedents. Why? Because Jewish history is a way to deepen our faith and connection with our Creator. My grandfather, blessed memory, used to say 
that whenever we study Jewish history, we can clearly see the Almighty's driving hand manipulating history to our betterment. Of course, when we're living it, it's sometimes hard to see the blessing, but when we look back, we see it quite clearly. But even more broadly, in Jewish history, we see the story of our people, but also about the development of mankind. You see, once you accept the concept of an intelligent creator of God, you necessarily accept that the world has a purpose. And also, if you accept that the world is finite, it has a beginning, you must also recognize that it has an end. There's a destiny, there's a goal, there's an objective that we're working towards. This is the concept that we call, in Hebrew, we call it Mashiach Messiah. In the general world at large, it's called progress. The idea that there's a start and it's not so perfect, and it needs to be fixed, and gradually over time, things get better, things improve, things progress towards a more perfect future. As God's chosen people, we believe that we play a central role in guiding and stewarding the world to its ultimate destination. Thus, Jewish history, it's not just about stories of the past, it has grander ramifications to the world at large. Because our history mirrors the trajectory of the development of the destiny of mankind. In Judaism, like we said, it's about the idea of Messiah, this inexorable march towards perfecting the world. We started with Abraham. And that mandate was given to Abraham's descendants at Sinai. The national mission statement of the Jewish people is to be on the vanguard of this effort to bring the world towards its perfection. So why do we study Jewish history? Jewish history is a serialized story marching, progressing towards a climactic crescendo towards the completion of what Abraham began. And if you look at the story of the Torah, of the five books, holistically, there's a very interesting pattern that emerges. The Torah begins with Adam, and the Torah ends with Moses. It begins with a world that gets broken. Adam allows the introduction of the foreign god, of evil within him. The godly soul becomes tainted. Moshe is representative of the world in its total completion, a soul that has been purged of any force of evil. If you look at Moshe under a spiritual microscope, he would look identical to the way Adam was before he sinned. And this story is the microcosm of world history of this transformation from being broken to being fixed, from being imperfect to becoming perfect. And we see this story threaded from the Torah on an individual level, from Adam, a man who became imperfect, to Moses, a person who perfected himself. On a global scale, Jewish history is about doing that same transformation for everyone. What happened to the individuals in Torah is going to happen to the world at large throughout Jewish history. For 2,000 years, the world was desolate until Abraham. For 2,000 years, the subsequent 2,000 years, the nation remained insular, the 2,000 years of Torah. The impact of Abraham's movement was not felt in the world at large, but the nation that he fathered, the nation that witnessed the Exodus and the sign of Revelation, 
the nation is gearing up for the final act of the 2,000 years of Messiah, the final 2,000 years when the light and the influence of Abraham goes worldwide. So what is Jewish history? It's the story of a nation effectuating seismic changes in the world. It's the story of the unveiling of what Abraham began 3,500 years ago. It's the story of national and global progress. To know what we need to do as a nation, to understand our individual responsibilities, we must learn about our past. We must learn about the vital mission entrusted to our people and see how far along we have come. And when you look back and see where we've we've come from, you plainly see how the arc of Jewish history, of human history, bends towards progress. With a keen sense of Jewish history comes clarity in what we must try to strive for as individuals and collectively as a people in our lives. So yes, the Jewish people have had a unique and unlikely story. We've had soaring heights, unparalleled and unmatched by any other people, and sadly, our nadirs were also not copied by anyone else. But at its core, Jewish history is a story and the progress of humankind in fulfilling the destiny of Abraham. Without Jewish history, we're flying blind. If we don't know from where we came from, how can we be expected to know where to go to? Indeed, Jewish history is worthwhile of our attention. It's a dramatic story. It's an empowering story. It's an inspiring story. Sometimes it's quite a terrifying story. But ultimately, we can see how the Dutch are getting in order for the grand revelation. In the next episode, the Jewish people will be tested. We're going to face unprecedented challenges. And we will benefit again from unlikely heroes and heroines. And things again will be quite iffy. The dream of Abraham will live to see another day. Thank you for listening. My email address is rabbiwalbyzim.com. To subscribe to my newsletter, visit rabbiwalby.com forward slash newsletter. If you want to support this podcast or the rest of my other podcast or the rest of the great work of our organization, Torch, the Torah Outreach Resource Center of Houston, visit torchweb.org. You can find the link to that and to all my podcast channels in the podcast show notes. I thank you so much for your time and for your attention.